If you would please take out your Bibles and turn with me, uh, not to the Psalms, but today to Paul's letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. Um, As we turn to God's Word, let's turn once again to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang together with one heart and one voice, would you, Father, take your truth and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Father, help us now as we come to your word to know that they are words of power that can never fail. And Father, we do pray and ask that their truth would prevail over the unbelief that remains in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know who was here at the beginning of the sermon on the last Sunday of September 2015. Anybody remember that day, the last Sunday, September 2015? And this opening statement was made. Today, there is widespread ignorance and confusion regarding Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do. And with that, we began a series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark that we finished up just this past May, on the last Sunday of May. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Mark is the earliest gospel. And I want you to think with me about chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. Remember, that was kind of a summary sermon of Jesus's first proclamation. And that's what Mark chose to record and include in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Indeed, Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he came to do, that is the gospel cannot be separated. In other words, you can't have Jesus without the gospel and you can't have the gospel without Jesus. And so it's no surprise that if there's widespread ignorance and confusion about Jesus, there would also be widespread ignorance and confusion about the biblical gospel, biblical being the official and authoritative authoritative account of the gospel. Now, in our new series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians, we're going to address this ignorance and this confusion when it comes to the gospel. Now, a number of years ago, um, I read and the men of the church a few years ago studied a book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, a Interestingly, a PCA ruling elder in Colorado Springs who died about a year ago, but who had tremendous influence through the years through his writing and speaking ministry. And in one of the early chapters of that book, The Discipline of Grace, he he talks about um, a a survey done in 1993 uh, at a Christian convention somewhere, about a thousand, several thousand people, and, and of that people, a thousand people participated in a survey. And the survey, one of the questions was, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And Bridges reports in his book that with a thousand people participating, there was really 
one answer that could kind of line up with a scriptural understanding of gospel. Now, does that mean those people were not Christians? Of course not, because sometimes we have trouble articulating and and communicating what it is we believe. But that study should be um, somewhat jarring to us. Um, What is the gospel? Now, just a few days ago, on October 31st, excuse me, August 31st, 2017, just less than two weeks ago, uh, the Pew Research Center on Religion and Public Life published a survey, and here's the title. U.S. Protestants are not defined by Reformation-era controversies 500 years later. Only about half say faith alone is enough to get into heaven, that Bible provides all guidance Christians need. Now, in response to this um, study that just came out, uh, you can imagine uh, people were shocked. Are you kidding me? But what we learned in doing some further research is some of the questions that were asked were kind of leading. And uh, you know what they say about statistics. Um, you can, can bend them any which way. But, but uh, even though there, some of the questions were leading and biased trying to get an answer, um, nonetheless, there was evidence of pretty widespread confusion and ignorance over basic things like the gospel. In the midst of ignorance and confusion in the first century and here in the 21st century, I believe Galatians will, among all the books of the Bible, help provide tremendous clarity on the gospel. And when the gospel is not clear, when when, uh, the gospel is distorted, as we will see, false teachers, how they distorted the gospel, people are easily distracted. Now that came home to me um, yesterday afternoon when I and uh, Michelle and the children and our dog attended his first puppy training class. And thankfully, Matthew, Duncan, our dog, was, was the only student in the class and he got some full attention from the teacher and she, the trainer, and she was using the leash, the leash to direct and control and train the puppy because he would be distracted by anything and everything. And she used the leash to control and direct. And as I thought about that, I believe that Galatians will serve for us as a leash that'll keep us tethered to the gospel. Now, we will discover, especially in the last two chapters, This is an account of Christian liberty. And so as you dog owners know out there, when you've got your dog on a leash, you're providing freedom for the puppy, freedom from danger and, 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 and helping them fully thrive. And that's what we will see. The leash of Galatians helping us stay tethered to the gospel will ultimately provide great freedom as we live and act in the way that we were created and designed to live. Well, let's just look real briefly at a broad overview of Galatians. In a word, it's a defense of the gospel. It's six chapters, 149 verses, and Paul will make a salutation to his readers that we will see today. Next week, we will see a denunciation, which is quite unusual um, for his letters. And then we will see autobiography, 
theology and ethics. Chapters 1 and 2, we will see Paul's personal defense of his gospel ministry. Paul defends his apostleship. In chapters 3 and 4, it will be Paul's theological defense of the gospel message. At its heart, justification by faith. And in the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, we will see his practical application of the gospel message to his readers' lives. In particular, we will see an exposition of Christian liberty. Now, if you had to come up with a theme of Galatians, if you had to come up with one word, and that's an interesting exercise to try to simplify a book of the Bible by one word. I would say it's faith. Faith. In particular, justification by faith. Turn with me to chapter 2 and look with me at verse 16. Um, as uh, I think it was James on Friday night pointed out, right? There was no exclamation points, right, in, in the scriptures, in the Greek. You couldn't um, bold it. You couldn't highlight it. But if you repeated something, not once, not twice, but three times, that was the major way to get somebody's attention. Like, holy, holy, holy Isaiah chapter 6. Well, here in one verse, chapter 2, verse 16, you will see justification by faith, not by works, not once, not twice, but three times. Look with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Back in my uh, military training days, a good instructor would say, this is what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. This is Paul saying, this is what I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you, and now that I've told you, I'm going to tell you what I told you. He wants us to walk away, as we will see, not just from that verse, but from all of Galatians, with that drilled into our heads and hearts, and as we will make a comment about what it means to beat it into our heads continually. Some have called Galatians the Magna Carta of the Reformation. Latin Magna Carta, the great charter of liberties. I'm not talking about the 1215 English document, but any document consisting of a fundamental guarantee of rights and privileges. And I just couldn't help but think, yeah, this is a Magna Carta. It's a, it's a letter that talks about our guarantee of our rights and our privileges. Now we're coming up on Martin Luther's uh, anniversary, the 500th anniversary of what would be seen as the start of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther discovered that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but rather what God had done for him in Christ. And of Galatians, he wrote this, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. Now that's Luther's attitude toward Galatians. Some of you may know that John Wesley, um, the, 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 the man God used to start the Methodist church, was converted primarily through reading Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Well, in my study this week, I found out his brother, Charles, who's 
penned any number of hymns that we sing from our Trinity hymnal, he was converted in large measure through Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now that's fascinating to see what God has done through Luther and his writings. And in his preface to his commentary, Luther says words to the effect, For there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. Now that's a statement that's toward the end of his preface, but that's a theme that goes throughout his commentary. Take a look, if you would, on page uh, 5. The something to think about quote. Um, you know, Luther wrote in German. He also wrote in Latin, but I believe he wrote his commentary uh, probably in Latin, of course, because it was a transcription of lectures in Latin. But it probably went into German. But finally, it had to come into English. And I, and I chose the, 800, excuse me, the 1860 translation of Luther's commentary because of this last couple of sentences where he says, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisted. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Well, over the next uh, six months or so, we are going to continually, as it were, beat the gospel and beat justification by faith into our heads. Why? Because our default is to not believe it. Our default is to believe in us and what we can do. I've called these first five verses the opening statement of the defense. The opening statement of the defense of the gospel. Because the gospel we will see is under attack. Paul knows that he has to defend the gospel. And as we will see in defending the gospel, Paul will also be proclaiming the gospel. Now our approach to the first five verses of Galatians will be to consider the moment. In other words, the historical background. We'll consider the messenger. In other words, the author. The apostle Paul. And finally, the message, in other words, the gospel itself. Now, to be sure, each of these will be considered in much more detail as we make our way through the letter. But each of these is nonetheless introduced right from the beginning. Join with me as I read these first five verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a look for a moment at the historical background. The authorship of Galatians is not in question, even 
rather liberal scholars who would question the authorship of a number of books of the Bible don't question Galatians. It's got Paul's fingerprints all over it. No doubt, no question. And as we just heard, read from Acts chapter 9, Saul or Paul was an unusual person to write this letter because this is one of the most unexpected role reversals. A man who was a legalistic, self-righteous persecutor of the church becomes a Christ-exalting, grace-proclaiming pastor, theologian, and apostle to the nations. This man was headed in one direction. He met Jesus and his life turned another direction. Now, I think it's dangerous for us to compare our own lives to Paul's and thinking that we have to have that kind of dramatic Damascus Road experience. But, nonetheless, as we see from his letter to the Ephesians, we can see who we were before Christ, dead in sin, lost, alienated, and who we are now in Christ as a result of meeting him. And the joy of being in a church where the children are welcomed and included is that, by God's grace, they won't have a conversion experience like Paul. But rather, they will be able to, in all honesty and in sincerity, say, there has never been a day that I have not known that I'm a sinner and Jesus is a Savior and He's my Savior. Paul, instead of persecuting the church, now preaches the gospel. He plants churches and through his letters, his epistles, he continues to oversee through both encouragement and correction, new congregations. Now, Galatians is written to who and written when. The audience and the date and the destination of the letter and the date are tied together. Because there's two theories out there of where these Galatian churches were. Was it the northern Galatian area, a geographical region? Or was it rather the southern Galatian area, a Roman political province that's a part of now modern day Turkey. And also the question is, is did this letter, was it written before or after the Jerusalem council mentioned in Acts 15? Well, Paul, as you know from Acts, um, spent uh, time on three missionary journeys that we're aware of uh, to preach and to plant. And you could consider his, his travel to Rome toward the end of his life was also a missionary Journey, And in his first missionary journey, he visited uh, the towns of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And they are all cities in this Roman province of Galatia. And we believe that that's who he was writing. These are churches he visited and established in his first missionary journey. And he's writing them somewhere between 46 and 48 AD, And most likely, it's not only Paul's first apostolic letter, it's perhaps the oldest New Testament book. Now, why was it written? What was the occasion? Well, there was a crisis involving false teaching. And in our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we saw the plague of false teaching. Even as we worked our way through Mark's gospel, we saw false teaching. And even in um, our Psalms, we, we saw lies false teaching all around. Now, these false teachers, we will see, were known as Judaizers, and they were not saying 
that faith in Christ is not necessary. Rather, they were saying that faith in Christ was not enough. Now, this is very important. They would have seen Jesus as the Messiah, but they would say it's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and something. Again, they were not saying that faith in Christ was not necessary. What they were saying is that faith in Christ is not enough. You have to add something. And Paul recognized that this not enough was a threat to the gospel. It was then and remains to this day a clear and present danger to the gospel. In these first five verses, Paul begins his defense of both the messenger and the message, of both himself and the gospel, of both his authority and the gospel's content. Well, let's take a look now at the messenger, the messenger, the apostle Paul. Look how he starts, Paul, an apostle. He's going to defend his credentials because his opponents, as we will see, would not only be distorting the message, but they were attacking the messenger. Often you've heard what an ad hominem argument is against the man. If you can't disagree with the argument, you go after the man. And we see that sadly in today's political discourse. You don't actually examine the argument, you just attack the person. Well, Paul's got it with double barrels here because they are attacking the argument of the gospel and they are also attacking the, uh, the uh, proclaimer of the gospel, Paul himself. Now, I want you to, to think with me as we get going on the messenger and the message that, that this can be seen as really the, what later we would see in the Protestant Reformation as the formal and the material cause or the principles involved. The formal cause or principle of the Reformation was authority. Authority. As you know, the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church understand uh, differently about who's got the final authority. And so the, the formal cause of the Reformation was who's got the authority? Are scriptures sufficient in and of themselves to have the final say? Sola scriptura. But then the material cause or the material principle would be justification by faith in Christ alone. So what you see is not just the authority of the message, but the message itself, the content of the message. And both are under attack here. It's no wonder that Galatians was formative at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Notice he says he's an apostle. It's his office, and it's the unique temporary time of an apostle. Paul is claiming for himself the title that the false teachers will end up denying him. Now, a Jew would have understood well what an apostle was. But remember, Jesus also chose and designated apostles. We saw that in Mark chapter 3. They were personally chosen, called, and commissioned by Jesus Christ and authorized to teach in his name. There's no apostolic succession like the Roman Catholic Church claims of the Pope. But what we have is one holy Catholic and apostolic church today that's built, of course, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on the foundation of their teaching, built on the foundation of the word of God. Notice his calling 
as an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's a forceful statement where he says this apostleship is not human in any sense, but essentially it's divine. It's not human either directly nor indirectly. It's wholly divine. Now, why assert and defend his apostleship? Because the gospel that he and the other apostles preached was at stake. He had to defend apostolic authority in order to defend the message. In passing, I want us to note that not only is he an apostle, but notice at root he is a Christian. He is a new creation in Christ. He is not alone, but among the brothers who are with me. And notice the, fir- the use of first personal, excuse me, first person plural pronouns, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul is an apostle, but he is including himself, as we will see, in the work of Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn now from Paul's credentials as a writer. He's an apostle to his purpose in writing, from his authority to his gospel. Paul was the messenger of a message, and that message is the gospel. And here in the first five verses of Galatians, we see the broad contours of the gospel the message that he proclaimed and defended. So let's take a look finally at the message, the gospel. And I want us to note first and foremost that the gospel is news. Kids, what does gospel mean? If you had to translate it, you know, good news. It's good news. The news is divine. The news is that we are justified by faith in Christ. The news is vital and the news changes us. What we're going to see in Galatians may be one of the first instances of real fake news. Okay? Paul has got a message, the gospel, and this gospel is being distorted and compromised by other false teachers as we will see. Indeed, it is fake news because ultimately it's not divine and it's not news that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And that kind of news is not really vital and that news, because it doesn't have the backing of God, will not change us. Oh yeah, it may create a lot of flurry of activity, but it won't change us from the inside out. So let's look again at the message, the gospel. It's the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember the preaching of the apostles in Acts. What did they preach? They preached the Old Testament scriptures along with what? The death and resurrection of Jesus. You want to preach a a sermon in Acts? Here's the Old Testament scriptures. Here's Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. His life, his death, his resurrection. That's how they preached the gospel. Notice resurrection in verse 1. Who raised him from the dead. It's already there. And notice the death. Who gave himself for our sins in verse 4. Who is Jesus? He's the one who gave himself for our sins. Remember, Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing. And it's a message of rescue and deliverance. To deliver us from the present evil age. King James and and ESV say deliver. NIV and New American Standard say rescue. Both are good words. To deliver us, to rescue us. One commentator says this, the gospel is a rescue. It's an emancipation from a state of bondage. And as we see here, the present evil age, here we see that biblical history is divided in two ages, this age and the age to come. And we're living in the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come and it's still the present evil age and Jesus will come again and that present evil age will give way to the new age and the coming age. So notice it's not just the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a message of rescue and deliverance, but how could we not see it? It's the message of grace and peace from God. Those two words summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. Even though Paul is going to use strong language, as we will see beginning next week, he nonetheless pronounces a blessing of grace and peace. And for those of you that want, remember that you've got grace here and peace. Of course, it's our name. It keeps grace and peace up front before our very eyes. Grace being a Greek word, the source of our salvation. God's free, unmerited favor. It's an undeserved act of kindness. And peace, Paul is importing that well-known Hebrew word shalom of peace and wholeness. Because that grace brings us into this time of, and relationship of peace and reconciliation. As I like to say it, the cause and effect of the gospel. Paul could give no greater blessing than grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And note how Paul ends this benediction. that He gives attention to both the will and the glory of God. Our salvation is according to plan, in other words, God's plan. And that involved the death of Jesus to give us new life. Paul ends this first section, this first paragraph, with a doxology of glory due to God because glory belongs to him. Indeed, as we reminded ourselves this morning in our adult Sunday school class, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You see it right here at the beginning of Galatians. And glory, of course, meaning heavy, weighty, worthy, significant, full of splendor and majesty and dignity. And here Paul is beginning a praise to God for past and present and future salvation. So here in these first few verses, we we see the nature of Christ's death. It was a sacrifice for sin. The object of Christ's death, our rescue, and the origin in God's will. Now, I want us to revisit as we conclude the moment. Not the moment then as in historical background, but our moment now. Why Galatians? 
Why now? Now, if I'd have been clever, I would have thought, man, yeah, just do it at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But that's really not why now. Because Galatians is written, remember, to professing Christians, and it focuses on the gospel. And people like you and me need to hear the gospel again and again and again because the gospel is the message, the one message that both the unbeliever needs to come to faith in Christ and that the believer needs to grow in faith in Christ. The gospel is not, as some have said, the ABCs of salvation but rather the A to Z. As I like to say, it's not just the on-ramp onto the interstate, it's the interstate itself of the Christian life. Now one theologian opens up his commentary with these words. Galatians is a letter for recovering Pharisees. The Pharisees were hypocrites because they thought what, what God would do for them depended on what they did for God. He goes on, there is a way out of Pharisaism. The way out is called the gospel. Many believe that God loves them, but secretly they suspect that his love is conditional, that it depends on how they are doing in the Christian life. They end up with a performance-based Christianity that denies the grace of God. To put this in theological terms, they want to base their justification on their sanctification. He finishes by saying this, most formal, excuse me, most former Pharisees, indeed most Christians are still in recovery. There is something of the old legalist in all of us. Now how about you all? We read chapter 2 verse 16. We hear it read. We even sing thy works not mine, O Christ. But do we believe it? Do we really believe it outside this hour and these walls? Is it going to affect how you relate to your children and your spouse and your friend and your boss and your employee and your student? But primarily, how is it going to affect your relationship with God? The gospel is the one central unifying message of Galatians. Indeed, of the whole Bible, through God's protection and provision, it is and will always be the one central message of grace and peace that we continually speak to ourselves and to others. May God be pleased to make it so. And may He be pleased to take the glorious truth that we are not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And may God, in His perfect, whether gentle or strong way, beat that glorious truth into our heads and our hearts continually. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that's been preserved through the years, that's been included in this book. 
that indeed is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, there's no way we could come up with the good news of the gospel on our own. It had to be revealed. Father, would you continue to open our minds and open our hearts to this glorious truth? And Father, may we as a church encourage one another to believe this good news and be so convinced of this good news that we will sniff out false news, fake news in a heartbeat. Oh, Father, would you protect us? Would you provide for us? Would you enable us to rest in the finished work of Christ, but to live out all of its implications in our lives as we trust him and as we pray in his name. Amen.